You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. We have a very special guest today, Madam Cannoli, also known as uh, Kimberly Hooks. We're going to talk to her about the work that she has been doing with Frenchie Cannoli's Legacy over the last couple of years and specifically a documentary a film that's coming out. In April, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the work that Kimberly uh, has done in the last couple of years. We're going to talk about Frenchie's legacy and all the people that worked with him and all the great work he did and really the significant contributions that he's made to the cannabis industry and, and to the world of hashish. So we're going to talk about all of that. We're going to hear what the documentary is about, what it's covered, and some of the interesting people that are in it and stories that are being told. So excited to have this conversation. We had Frenchie on the program, I think it was January of 2021, and uh, I think it was episode 215, and I'll put a link in the show notes so people can go that so we can so you can listen to Frenchie and the wonderful interview we had then. But with all that, Kimberly, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you on. So uh, before we dive into the work that you've been doing since Frenchie passed away, let's get a little bit of background. Let's learn about you. How did you get into cannabis? How did you meet Frenchie? Give us the backstory. Well, you know, we were the children of the, the hippie generation, the end of the hippie generation. And we met at a full moon party in Pokhara in Nepal in June of 1980. And uh, he was traveling with some friends, and uh, I was on my own and uh, attended this wonderful uh, full moon party that they had. And then we randomly kept bumping into each other in India, of all places. Uh It was like bumping into somebody in California and then seeing them in Texas and then seeing them in New York. (laughs) And at some point, I think after the fourth or fifth time that I randomly ran into them, they were like, you need to just start traveling with us. We're going to have a birthday for Frenchie in the south of India. We were um, in the north at that time. Why don't you meet up with us there in a few weeks? And, you know, this was pre-cell phone days. Didn't have a map or anything, but just on, you know, kind of the blind confidence of youth. Took a train to that place, arrived in the evening without really a clear destination of where they would be and started walking through this grove of bananas and ran into Frenchie, who had arrived a day early to prepare for his birthday. And uh, ended up traveling with him and a group of Frenchmen all over India for about nine months. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, you know, I've been to Pukhara, so I can actually know that the, it's a fairly big city, but it's not a major city in 
in Nepal. How, like, why, you know, was this part of your general travels? Was this related to cannabis at that point? Like, give me a little context from from what you ended up doing in the cannabis world. No, um, it really was related to travel. I was very, I always wanted to travel when I was younger. Before Asia, I went to Latin America. I was very interested in Asian spirituality and Buddhism and some of the meditation practices that uh-huh. were being done by various teachers there. And cannabis was kind of, uh, you know, part of the the charm of uh, visiting these countries. It was yeah. part of the community culture of other travelers because this was a time when a lot of people took a gap year or years, as it ended up being in my case. And you know, that was just something that uh, that was was part of the culture, part of the the full moon party culture that then extended, you know, as people returned home overland, bringing back, you know, this magical product that they had discovered uh, on their travels to Europe or or the U.S. Yeah. So help us understand the relationship. So um, in terms of your relationship with cannabis, you, you, you were working with cannabis or what was your relationship with cannabis sort of pre-Frenchie, post-Frenchie? Give me a little sense of how you and cannabis and Frenchie kind of developed over time. So... Pre-Frenchie, I was just a casual user. Uh, mm-hmm. Frenchie was very much interested in always smoking the highest quality product. And he mm-hmm. quickly realized that in order to do that, you had to make your own. So wherever yeah. he traveled, he sought out farmers and producers and uh, convinced them to let him work alongside them. And so he spent eight seasons up north in the mountains. I was there one year, but that kind of very rugged mountain life without you know, a source of water and uh, <laughs> kind of formal places to stay. Living in lean-tos and caves yeah. was not quite my thing. So I let Frenchie uh, do that on his own. Yeah. So it was largely, for me, it was really part of the, you know, kind of winter vacation Goa lifestyle of the uh-huh. parties and uh, just the cannabis culture with the shiloms. And uh, that was very much... Uh, integral to the life that we had at that time. Yeah. And uh, Frenchie's then focused later when he came to California on uh, making hashish here and teaching others to do it as well. Yeah. Now, you know, we had we had Frenchie on and he kind of gave us a lot of his story. I, I would be curious to kind of get your perspective on where, like, what was really Frenchie's, you know, passion and contribution and what did he want to really do for the world of cannabis? I, I, I'm curious to kind of get your take having you know, intimately known him for so long, like how, how do you summarize it for people? So I would say normalization of cannabis consumers. So for those of us who smoked during that time period, you know, this was the, the full on war on drugs period. And anybody who smoked was deemed, uh, you know, almost a menace to society. And from the perspective of your parents, you know, it was really shameful if you were doing this. And it was especially heavy in France. So for Frenchie, it's always been not only this dedication to, you know, helping people create the best quality cannabis concentrates in the form of traditional hashish, but also to normalize that you can just be somebody who functions at a very high level and also be a cannabis consumer and that this shouldn't be looked down upon. You shouldn't be perceived as somehow less than others in society, especially in a society where alcohol consumption is, you know, deemed so normal and even in social 
settings encouraged, mm -hmm. you know, from our perspective, cannabis should be perceived in the same way, yes. or at least not stigmatized to the degree that still exists. Yeah. I mean, I, I would even argue it's probably much, much less issues, social health issues relative to alcohol, you know, that you look at the data and the, you know, kind of public health statistics clearly, you know. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think for me, yeah, I like to point out in some cases that, you know, you can die from overconsumption of alcohol and overconsumption of cannabis will just put you to sleep for a few hours. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to, you know, get into any kind of uh, <laughs> conflict with that industry. I just want people, you know, for Frenchie, he was really adamant that consuming cannabis and he consumed really all day long. Uh -huh. It was very, it contributed to what he called an overall sense of well-beingness. And yeah. I know this is not a one size fits all and it's not for everybody the, you know, level of consumption that, that he had. But for people whose biology, the plant is, you know, that kind of fit, I want them to be able to have access to that. I want them to have that psychological comfort that it brings or also in some cases that physical comfort. Frenchie had kind of full body arthritis. Mm -hmm. And so he had a little bit of pain continually. He used to eat small balls of um, hashish in the morning with his coffee so that it would be metabolized by his liver and give him that overall, it's not really pain relief, it's a lack of acknowledgement of pain yeah. uh, when you consume it that way. And I wish that that kind of um, opportunity was available to so more many people. I think if it was, we wouldn't have some of the issues we have with people getting addicted to some of these stronger yeah. painkillers. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a great thing for a lot of people as they're aging because your bones just ache when you're older. Yeah, so that's part of the continued Frenchie legacy is uh, for me to continue to promote his education and just the uh, all of the free content that we have to support that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, just, uh, you know, give people a sense, you know, the couple of years before Frenchie passed away, what, what was it, it, my impression? His focus was really on education and really kind of teaching and, and helping, you know, not just normalize generally, but really pass on, you know, some of the more kind of technical and, you know, process things around how to make um, particularly hashish and really understand the plant at a more intimate level. Give us your take on really what was he focused on for the for the couple of years before he passed away? Absolutely. So, you know, we had been involved in the industry here for some years, and it, with the commercialization of adult-use cannabis in California, the situation just got to the point wherein um, at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, he decided he didn't want to participate in the commercial environment yeah. anymore, that he wanted to just focus the rest of his time on teaching young people the basics of how to make really good quality hashish and that he wanted to leave a legacy both in do-it-yourself videos that uh, the filmmaker who did the documentary with us, he also did a four-part series on how to make hashish. And after Frenchie's passing, there's a group in Brazil that reached out to me that are involved in the movie industry there that told me they could do subtitles in Portuguese for the do-it-yourself home videos. Um, and they wanted to do this for free just as a... a to honor Frenchie. And um, so we did that and we made those available online. And when I made these available online, people from other countries came to me and said, well, if you have them in Portuguese, we'd <laughs> like to donate our time to do it's the French <laughs> yeah. and the Spanish. And we now have it in German and Italian. So we currently have the do-it-yourself videos 
that were very generously done by people in the community, kind of paying it forward, if you will, of from Frenchie's teaching in six languages. That's amazing. And, and, you know, certainly, you know, my perception from the industry is, you know, his, his passing was a little bit of a surprise. And, you know, I know that there was, uh, I'm sure for you, there was a lot of figuring out, okay, what, what do I do next? You know, not only personally, but really from, you know, the, the pieces he left or the work that he was doing. I'd be curious to tell, tell me a little bit about how you kind of figured out what you wanted to do. You know, he, there's a lot of content, a lot of knowledge, a lot of legacy, how did you sort of start to figure out how you were going to work with the materials, work with his legacy and continue things? What was your kind of motivation and thinking around this? So we already had some major projects that we had been working on throughout the pandemic. Wrapping up the film was one of them. That was one of the easiest things to complete because the filmmaker during the pandemic hunkered down and really ironed out the final details. So uh, the first thing I did was work with that same team, the Overgrow Shop in Brazil, to help create the professional subtitles for the film. So the film will have subtitles in five languages. Mm -hmm. And then also during the pandemic, Frenchie had been working on three books, one on the history of cannabis concentrates, one a very detailed do-it-yourself hash-making manual, and one on edibles. And so now that I've almost finished with the film, I'm starting to focus on finishing the editing of these books. So that will be the next thing that I release and get out to the public. Additionally, Frenchie had started doing something during the pandemic because he was really missing all of the conferences that he normally attended and getting uh -huh. together with the cannabis community. So he created something called the Hash Porn Beauty Contest. He wanted to really amplify the work of other young hash makers so that they could get exposure and so that people could celebrate the visual beauty of hashish, both in the uh, traditional hashish form and also in the rosin form. Uh -huh. So um, the week before 420, we invite people to post their best photo of their current work. Uh -huh. And for the ones that uh, Frenchie deemed appropriate uh -huh. to his uh, kind of understanding of quality, we repost those to our accounts so that other people become aware of these young hash makers. So I Got have it. continued to do his hash porn contest, okay. and I'll be doing the sixth iteration for 420 this year. That's amazing. So let's talk about the film. Give us a little background on how the idea of the film started. It's kind of, there's always a story about how it gets produced. <laughs> Give us a little details on uh, the history of things. So we had been working with our filmmaker, Jake Remington of the Collabo NYC is the name of his company, um, doing the do-it-yourself hash videos. And as they were doing those do-it-yourself hash videos, so I was looking at them and I said, you know, this reminds me so much of Jiro Dreams of Sushi, because in this uh, film, yeah. Jiro Dreams of Sushi, they chronicle kind of the day in the life of this 80-year-old Michelin star sushi maker in Tokyo. And that's pretty much what we were doing. Jake was filming Frenchie as he was working and, and uh, filming basically the totality of his workshop so that people would have all these details to work with. So we decided Jake should join us in Barcelona for Spanibus the one year to kick off him kind of following Frenchie around the globe as Frenchie visited farmers and basically did his day-to-day -day life. And this coincided without a lot of planning on our part to be the last year of medical use in California and then into the first year of adult use. Mm -hmm. And so 
it suddenly morphed into this situation where we were recording one set of condition with the farmers that Frenchie works up with up north during the medical use, uh -huh. and then a whole different set that emerged as things transitioned into adult use and the opening of the market earlier than had been initially planned and just all of the challenges that occurred afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And what were the casting characters? Give us a sense of, of who was involved in this and what their roles were. Frenchie works with a variety, worked with a variety of farmers up north, but some of his Favorite farmers are located in an area of Humboldt called the Lost Coast. So a few few of the farms there are profiled. Also, Frenchie's apprentice, Laura Bell, who goes by the moniker Cherry Blossom Bell on Instagram, and who's now director of operations for Heritage Mendocino and running a huge hack-making facility there, is also featured quite a bit. Her brother, who's the master burrito, Leo Stone, is also featured and then just other people who were working in the various farms and, yeah, a host of other farmers that Frenchie visited and, and worked with over the years. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. What, what was the most challenging part, do you feel, of, of getting this, uh, you know, getting the film produced, getting it shot and produced? I think Jake told me that he had over 80 hours of material. Oh, she's And all of it was fantastic because yeah. he's just an amazing filmmaker. And of course, filming the macro photos of the trichomes and the beautiful yeah. fields of cannabis. They had a drone, so they were doing the aerial photos. Frenchie's a passionate and compelling speaker and always has amazing sound bites. So... It, I think it was such artistry to be able to watch those 80 hours and find snippets of dialogue among all these people that create a kind of seamless conversation between them for an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, and I'm so proud of the work that he did and also just how it portrays the current situation in California for these small farmers. Yeah. Yeah. Give us, so um, with, without being too much of a spoiler. <laughs> give, give us a sense of really what does the film cover? What is the message? Like what what are what are you trying to sort of put out into the world by producing this? So Frenchie is, is noted for saying that the way we treat the plant, the way that we work with it will define the future. And so he really wanted the film to focus on three things. Wanted to tell a little bit of his um, life story, how he got involved with uh, hash making wanted to really illustrate some of that hash making. So some of the scenes are um, at some of the workshops that he did. And he also wanted people to understand that the quality that he worked with is given to him by the farmers that he works with, that that quality is not something that he makes. It's yeah. something that is grown by those people with dedication and love. And is also a part of the terroir of the local growing conditions that those people are nurturing on their regenerative farms. So Frenchie really wanted people to understand that, you know, for him, the best cannabis was always going to be sun-grown in the outdoors and was going to be in some very special growing condition, whether that be at, you know, 6,000 feet in the Himalayas, hand rubby charis in wild fields, or in northern Humboldt in this Lost Coast area with a very special microclimate working with these multi-generational farmers. Yeah. Any highlights that you can kind of tease us on in terms of, um, you know, what people will see in the film? 
they'll see a lot of hash. There'll be a lot of hash bars, <laughs> some amazing macros, beautiful cannabis farms. Yeah. Just wonderful, authentic people. And also, part of this also was born from this idea when you look at cannabis content on most mainstream, you know, kind of platforms like your Netflix or Discovery or mm -hmm. HBO or whatever. For us, there's kind of two categories. There's stoner stupid and there's stoner murderous. And most, if not all of the people that I know within the industry fit into neither one of those categories. They're yeah. normal people who happen to be making a living with this plant that they have yeah. a lot of passion and dedication to. So, you know, that's really also very strongly illustrated in the film because, as I mentioned before, Frenchie felt very strongly about breaking the stigma and pointing out to people that you could be a highly functioning human being, a very creative, imaginative human being, and a cannabis smoker. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the distribution, showing, like what, how do we get this out there? I mean, I, I know the world is full of all sorts of kind of platforms and things these days for distribution, but what, what has been your decisions around how you want to, um, you know, distribute, show, uh, get this, get this film out into the world? So initially, um, I did some screening. I rented out some cinemas in a variety of cities and did some some screenings in person to be with the community and uh, do Q&As after the film. We also submitted the film to a couple of film festivals, mm -hmm. which we did not get chosen. And I'm still a little, you know, in my background, I'm still feeling a little bit the cannabis yeah. stigma may play yeah. a part in that. Sure. And so we've decided to release it ourselves in a, on an online streaming platform. On April 29th, I'm going to do a series of kind of premiere parties, virtual premiere parties, uh -huh. and invite people worldwide to hold in-home hosting events where they uh, purchase one ticket to watch it with their friends. And then I'm going to do a Q&A after using our YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook live streamings to connect with everybody, answer their questions, and hear their uh comments on the film. So I'm really looking forward to, over the course of April 29th, uh -huh. spend some time initially with people in Europe and then jump to the East Coast of the U.S. and then the West Coast of the U.S. to participate in these virtual streaming parties. I'm going to be doing a raffle. I should mention that proceeds from the film, the ticket sales, mm -hmm. a percentage of the ticket sales are going to the Origins Council. This is a nonprofit that works with over 900 legacy cannabis Farmers and businesses in California, they are doing a study on cannabis terroir with the Lost Coast Farmers Guild, which is some of the farmers featured in the film. Frenchie was very passionate about helping the farmers get kind of named recognition. And this type of study is the first step towards that, to protecting their heritage. So I'm thrilled to be able to use proceeds from the ticket sales to support this. And then we're also going to be doing some raffle and auctions on the day to further generate some money to support the studies that they're going to be doing. Yeah. And where does the film go from there? I mean, to, so April 29th, series of I showings. I mean, then everybody can purchase the streaming whenever they'd like. I mean, I'm hoping that we generate enough buzz on the 29th that uh -huh. that will draw attention to some of the larger streaming platforms and that maybe one of them will pick it up and mm -hmm. that will make it 
available to people outside the industry that are cannabis curious, uh-huh. because I think this is a, a great way to learn about the plant, learn about the community, learn about the farmers, and experience it from our perspective. Yeah. Uh, so, so you mentioned that you've got a couple of other projects then. I guess, when do you feel like you're kind of the work on the film ramps down and you can ramp up some of these other ones. What does that time frame look like for you? I think that's maybe, you know, after April 29th, I'll see how, you know, what happens, uh, you know, based on the buzz that we create. But to a degree, once I've released it to the internet, you know, then it, it'll take on a life of its own and I'll <laughs> start to focus the majority of my my time on getting the books finished because especially the do-it-yourself book, you know, I think that'll be so lovely for people to have that type of reference. I've actually, Frenchie um, has had numerous occasion where people from producing countries have contacted him to get some fine-tuning guidance on hash making. So this yeah. is such a lovely thing where maybe the tradition skipped a generation and some of the knowledge was lost to be able to give back. Interesting. And to just be able to set out the basics for anybody to use. Frenchie was really clear that, you know, we didn't have a lot of access to the science of the plant when we were young because, yeah. you know, you didn't have the internet and it, it wasn't going to be an easy thing to go in a, to a library and say, hey, can <laughs> I, can you give me all your books on yeah. cannabis? So this is our way of making this available all over the world. And again, with the support of the translation group, I really hope to have this translated into some of the main languages so that this is knowledge that is not lost and will be built on. Because I, Frenchie was really clear, and I'm really clear, that the next generation, like his apprentice, are going to be doing things in a way, using tools that are better, yeah. And just continuing to um, improve the process and make this standard, this high quality standard of product, the norm and not the exception for what cannabis consumers should expect. Yeah. Do you hope that people that watch the film that get curious and you know want to know more, then pick up the book and actually start working with the plot themselves? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. Belle and I are continuing to do the workshops. And Frenchie also had a group on uh, Facebook called the Lost Art of the Hashishin Group, where I continue to answer his questions. I organized all of Frenchie's workshop. I counted the other day. I think we did, over the course of about five years, 120 workshops. So I've seen Frenchie <laughs> do the workshop. I participated in, I think, every workshop except maybe two or three times where Belle yeah. went with Frenchie somewhere. So I am, I call myself the little Frenchie parent and librarian. I can I answer the basic questions and what I can't answer, I can get Belle to uh, give me the details. Yeah. So we continue to support do-it-yourself hash making. And I really think for a lot of people who are already growing their own plant, this is the next step in kind of controlling your destiny in terms of having access to quality product at a reasonable price. Yeah. Yeah. So if uh, if someone gave you a million dollars to to fund, you know, all the work and continue this legacy, like what would you really focus on? How do you what would you accelerate? What would you do next? I mean, where where do you really go with all this? So there was another project that Frenchie was very passionate about and very interested in, and that is aging hashish. And we started hashish aging study with a lab in Canada called High North. We were only able to do one iteration. And that's another area where ultimately I'm looking to do fundraising because there's a misconception. Well, 
maybe not a misconception, but in North America, when people talk about hashish, they're often talking about a live unpressed resin that's stored in the refrigerator. That's not technically what we would call traditional hashish. Traditional hashish is a pressed resin product. And during that pressing, you're decarbing it, which Uh makes it shelf stable, meaning that you don't need to put it in the refrigerator. You can keep it in a life-proof container in a cool place like a wine cellar Uh and age it. And because terpenes have a natural corrosive functionality, the product will mature and change over time, almost like a fine wine, depending on the cultivar. Uh So Frenchie was really curious to do studies to determine at what point would it no longer be good to age? So what's like the ultimate shelf life? And also to document that a lot of, you know, a lot of this concern and why people are keeping it in the refrigerator is that the THC is going to convert into CBN. And this occurs in our limited studies much slower than people are anticipating. And so, you know, we would just like to continue those studies and document at different temperatures what's actually happening and get a sense of how long we can store this. Frenchie once smoked in Nepal a royal Nepalese temple ball that had been aged for 12 years. Wow. So as we understand it right now, that's kind of not a limit, but an acceptable point. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we would just really love to see some long-term aging studies occur. Yeah. It just it just goes to show how little we know, uh, you know, technically about this plant and how much more understanding and research that we can do to really um, see what it can do, its benefits, and how we can use it in all of its different shapes and forms. So really, it's, it's amazing work that you're doing. I think designer cannabis is really the super cool wave of the future. We need more people who, as they are becoming producers, really looking into the science of the cannabinoids, understanding what they do both psychoactively and therapeutically, and then doing the same with the terpenes. Because when you look at traditional hashish concoctions in India or other places like Morocco, they're using other spices that have also their terpene profile to enhance what's happening with the cannabis. So, for example, in the traditional bong, you know, a lot of pepper is used because that's got the beta-carophylline in it mm-hmm. that acts as a natural calming agent to the THC and cannabis, which causes anxiety for some people. So I think as we move forward and we start to reach out to a wider consumer base, There are a lot of us who don't need those excessively high THC cultivars that in fact that that's not comfortable for many people and that we would do well to look at some of the studies of what was being grown back in the 80s when the THC percentages were so much lower, but yet we had these products that were very rich in um, the terpenes coming from the Himalayas and whatnot and just having people, you know, more thoughtfully combine these things and design products appropriate to a variety of different emotional needs, different settings, different times of days. I think this is really going to be an interesting thing as we move forward. It's amazing. Kimberly, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about the work that you're doing, about the film, what's the best way to get all this information? So we have a website and it's frenchycanoli.com and Frenchie is spelled with a Y, so it's F-R-E-N-C-H-Y-C-A-N-N-O-L-I. 
for all of our uh, do-it-yourself content, fr- the podcast, Smith, Frenchie's writing. Frenchie wrote extensively as well. And then there's also a dedicated website for the film, and that's simply Frenchie Dreams of Hashish. Excellent. I'll make sure that the links on all those are in the show notes, as well as we'll link our previous episode with Frenchie on there as well, so people can listen to that. Kimberly, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. For me as well. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. 